Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Janat Jalil and in the early hours of Monday the 6th of April, these are our main stories. The British Prime Minister has been taken to hospital 10 days after testing positive for COVID-19. Queen Elizabeth urges people to show self-discipline and resolve during the coronavirus pandemic and to take comfort in the knowledge that better days will return. And the UN calls on Bangladesh to restore internet connections to the world's largest refugee camp housing a million Rohingya Muslims. Also in this podcast, the consequences of the coronavirus pandemic on religious festivals and how world religions are dealing with it. We are celebrating the Holy Week, meaning the passion and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And this is a message in itself, a message of hope that the darkness will not last. And why the football league in Nicaragua is playing on despite the pandemic. But first, the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was admitted to hospital for tests on Sunday evening, 10 days after being diagnosed with COVID-19. A Downing Street statement said that Mr Johnson remains in charge of the government. I asked our political correspondent, Rob Watson, what we know about Mr Johnson's condition. We don't know a vast amount. The way I'd characterise it, Jeanette, is that Downing Street are playing it down, I think is the phrase I would use, saying that he's gone in for routine tests. It was not an emergency admission. It was a precautionary step. It was done on the advice of his doctor. And it wasn't so much because his symptoms of a high temperature and a cough were getting worse, but just that they weren't getting any better, that they were persistent. But... I mean, you have to think that presumably Downing Street and the Prime Minister were immensely reluctant for him to go anywhere near hospital, given that it would somehow take away from some of the force of the Queen's extraordinary message earlier in the evening. And of course, it just is not a great look for a government that wants to seem as though it's in charge of a crisis to have the most senior member of that government in hospital. Especially when Britain is entering a crucial time in its battle against the coronavirus. And we're hearing that uh, Boris Johnson's deputy is going to chair the next government meeting to discuss this crisis. So it does seem a little bit contradictory with the message that the Prime Minister is sending out that he still remains in charge. Absolutely, it is contradictory. I mean, Downing Street is saying as he goes, as he went into hospital, he was in charge, but that he will not be in chairing this this key meeting. I'd throw something else in as well, and that that is that some of the newspapers in the UK on Sunday were were full of stories about tensions and rivalries within the government while Mr Johnson has been ill and isolated upstairs in Downing Street in the apartment above the Prime Minister's offices, the sort of idea that without him uh, there on the shop floor, as it it were, that tensions were bubbling over, given what an incredibly sort of tense and difficult crisis uh, uh, this is. So uh, obviously the sort of notion of the Prime Minister being in hospital would not help that or that sort of sense of a government that's really been struggling at times. Rob Watson. Apart from her annual Christmas broadcast, Queen Elizabeth rarely addresses the nation. But on Sunday evening, she spoke from Windsor Castle to give a short recorded address to the people of Britain and the Commonwealth. In it, she thanked the healthcare workers and said that through self-discipline and resolve, the outbreak would be overcome. Across the Commonwealth and around the world, 
we have seen heartwarming stories of people coming together to help others, be it through delivering food parcels and medicines, checking on neighbours, or converting businesses to help the relief effort. And though self-isolating may at times be hard, many people of all faiths and of none are discovering that it presents an opportunity to slow down, pause and reflect in prayer or meditation. It reminds me of the very first broadcast I made in 1940, helped by my sister. We as children spoke from here at Windsor to children who had been evacuated from their homes and sent away for their own safety. Today, once again, many will feel a painful sense of separation from their loved ones. But now as then, we know deep down that it is the right thing to do. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. This time we join with all nations across the globe in a common endeavour, using the great advances of science and our instinctive compassion to heal. We will succeed, and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. Our Royal Correspondent Johnny Diamond listened to the speech. This was an ambitious broadcast that aimed to reassure, to inspire and to recast the crisis as a collective effort to protect the most vulnerable. The Queen spoke of the disruption to everybody's lives. She thanked those on the front line of the NHS, care workers and those in essential roles. Together we are tackling this disease, she said, and if we remain united and resolute we will overcome it. She urged people to think of their place in history. Those who come after us, she said, will say the Britons of this generation were as strong as any. Echoes of the Second World War rang through her speech. But she did not speak of conflict or struggle, and the attributes she emphasised were peaceful ones, of self-discipline, good-humoured resolve and fellow feeling. Johnny Diamond. His own official website bills him as the nation's doctor, so when the United States Surgeon General speaks, Americans tend to pay attention. This was the current Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, talking on Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press. The next week is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment. It's going to be our 9-11 moment. Uh, it's going to be the hardest moment for many Americans in their entire lives. And we really need to understand that if we want to flatten that curve and get through the, to the other side, everyone needs to do their part. President Trump has already warned Americans that they're about to endure, as he put it, a lot of death. And the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, has admitted that the U.S. is struggling to get coronavirus under control. So what is the current state of America's battle against the virus? A question for our North America correspondent, Peter Bowes. 
Things really couldn't be more serious. And we're hearing this articulated by these experts, the country's most senior scientific and medical experts, and really a dire warning from the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, saying, as we've just heard, that this is going to be the hardest and saddest week of most Americans' lives. A Pearl Harbor moment, a 9-11 moment. Pearl Harbor, 1941, the Japanese attack on a U.S. Navy base in Honolulu. It killed two and a half thousand people almost mostly military personnel and then of course more recently the september the 11th attacks of 2001 the difference he said would be that the deaths as a result of coronavirus would not be localized it would be he said a national catastrophe and he urged americans to continue doing their part to keep infections as low as possible saying everyone had the power to change the trajectory of the epidemic and then of course anthony fauci who has become a very familiar face on American television in these last few weeks said that there was a looming escalation of the pandemic and he asked Americans to prepare for a bad week and perhaps most ominous and interesting was that he said the situation still wasn't under control. The authorities couldn't claim that it was under control, something that Donald Trump has actually said over the past few weeks but not so much in the last few days. You talk about this being a problem that's affecting the whole nation, but New York in particular has been hardest hit. Yes, and if there is a glimmer of hope, it could be coming from New York. It is still the pandemic's uh, epicentre in the United States, but the latest numbers show us that infections and deaths have dropped for the first time, and also patients requiring hospital are down for the first time in a week. So there is a glimmer of hope. The governor, though, warning that it's too early to know of the significance of this data. Peter Bowes. Different countries have chosen different ways to fight the coronavirus. On Sunday night, millions of Indians switched off their lights and lit candles, lamps and flash torches in response to an appeal by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi to ward off the darkness of the virus. But the symbolic gesture has been criticised as a gimmick and the Prime Minister's critics say he should be focusing on the plight of the poor instead. Our correspondent Divya Arya told me how people in Delhi responded to Mr Modi's call. There was absolute compliance till as far as I could see from my balcony. Completely dark out there and uh, lots of mobile torches being flashed, lots of oil lamps. In fact, the exuberance was so much that there were firecrackers being burst. There were also slogans being shouted of Hail Mother India. And that's not just happened in my neighborhood, but across the country. I've been looking at reports coming from different parts of the country, similar things, fireworks and conch playing, which is a very symbolic Hindu tradition of uh, announcing victory and slogans of Hail Mother India. But this has been dismissed by Mr Modi's critics as a PR stunt. Indeed, but it seems that it is quite, it has been quite popular with people. Now, the critics say that this is a gimmick to take away attention from what the government needs to answer for, and that is facilities for health workers. There have been many complaints that personal protective equipment is not available and doctors are being forced to do their duty without adequate protection. Then there's also been a lot of criticism of people not given enough notice when the lockdown, which India is now in the middle of a three-week lockdown, we are into the 11th day, 
and people didn't have enough notice and therefore have suddenly been rendered jobless without enough savings and are struggling for food to eat. And what is the government doing in response to this criticism? Because there have been some really heartbreaking stories about how this lockdown has hurt India's poor. Indeed, uh, there are thousands, tens of thousands of people who work in big cities but come from villages and smaller cities. Now, these are daily wage labor, so they do not have, uh, you know, deep pockets. And when the lockdown was announced with just a four-hour notice, a three-week lockdown with just a four-hour notice, there was panic. They wanted to return to their houses where they would. They felt that they had some support from their families, some savings, some way to even feed themselves. But that did not happen, and uh, they now feel very stranded. And despite the government promising them a financial package, food and shelter, it remains to be seen how those benefits will reach them because so many restrictions are in place. Divya Arya. In neighbouring Bangladesh, the authorities suspended mobile connections in the world's largest refugee camp last year, citing security reasons. But now the United Nations and human rights groups are calling for the internet to be restored there so people can access information about the coronavirus. Nearly a million Rohingya Muslims who fled persecution in Myanmar currently live in the camp. There haven't been any reported cases of infection there yet, but officials remain concerned after one case was confirmed at nearby Cox's Bazaar. This report from our South Asia correspondent, Rajini Vijanathan. How can we escape from coronavirus, the singer asks. In this video, basic hygiene tips are set to music. It's part of a widespread drive to raise awareness of COVID-19 to Rohingya refugees, which has involved everything from videos teaching people how to sneeze correctly to the inventive use of vehicles. Parked by the side of the road in the world's largest refugee camp is a green rickshaw with a loudspeaker tied to the top. Coronavirus is an infectious disease that can spread from person to person, booms the message. This lo-fi way of sharing health warnings is essential in a place which has been cut off from the outside world. Louise Donovan's from the United Nations Refugee Agency. The UN and human rights groups are concerned that the Bangladeshi government is still banning internet in the camps, a move which began last September. We're continuing very strongly to advocate with the government of Bangladesh to re-establish this internet connection. This will enable people to have access to reliable information and also to have contact with their family and their loved ones. And access to information might encourage more people to stay at home. At a food market in one of the camps, crowds gathered to buy fresh fruit and pulses, oblivious to the fact there's been a lockdown in place for more than a week. NGOs have suspended all but essential services to limit social contact and the spread of the virus. Crammed in the two-room dwelling he shares with nine other members of his family, Saidul Rahman is teaching his children the alphabet as they gather round him. Like so many others, he's now homeschooling his children. But one thing he's not been taught about are the dangers of COVID-19. We don't know about coronavirus. We heard that people can't stay close to each other. But our home is too small, so we don't know how we can maintain distance. It's also hard to maintain hygiene. 
We need soap to wash our hands frequently and we don't have enough food to eat because it's difficult to get to the market. If coronavirus arrives in the camp, we don't know how we will survive. And if it arrives in the camps, which are densely populated, there are concerns about how the healthcare system will cope. Dr. Abdullah Al-Noman from Save the Children explains. In the camp right now, there is no facility to give any ventilated support to the patient. If the facility receives any critical cases, there are possibilities of many people could die. The Rohingya Muslims who fled persecution in Myanmar have already survived the darkest of times. Stateless, they don't have a government looking out for them in this crisis. One refugee had this plea. Dear Corona, please stay away from Rohingya refugee camps. Dear world, please save us. Rajini Rajanathan in Bangladesh. Still to come on this podcast, how the lockdown in South Africa has helped to bring crime numbers down. After three weeks of near-total coronavirus lockdown and the second-highest number of deaths after Italy, Spain is hoping that it's beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. The recorded number of daily deaths has fallen again, although it's still well over 600. And there's also been a downward trend in the rate of infection in the past week. The Spanish health minister, Salvador Ia, said the statistics showed that the country's tough lockdown is working. The figures lead us to clearly affirm that the confinement measures which the Spanish people are complying with in an exemplary way are working. I asked our correspondent in Madrid, Guy Hedgeco, if Spain was finally turning a corner in its battle with the virus. That certainly seems to be the feeling. Over the last few days, the government has been saying that that was the case, that the figures are stabilising. number of deaths from the last 24 hours is 674. Now, obviously, that's still a very dramatic number, but it's much lower than 809. And just a, couple of, a few days ago, we had well over 900. So that number seems to be coming down, as does the number of new daily infections. The latest number was just over 6,000, which again sounds like a lot, but that's quite a bit lower than we had been seeing earlier on in this crisis. So the authorities believe that this reflects a stabilisation of the figures and that although they are still rather dramatic and that total number of deaths at over 12,000 obviously is, is tragic, but the figures do seem to be coming down or coming under control at least. And this seems to be in large part down to the lockdown, which the the Spanish government wants to extend for another two weeks. And we've been hearing how strictly Spain has been enforcing this lockdown with a huge number of people being fined. Yes, that's right. The Interior Minister, Fernando Grande Marlaska, has given us the latest figures in terms of fines and arrests related to violations of the lockdown. And over 300,000 people have been fined because of that, and nearly 3,000 people have been arrested for related infractions. That sounds like a huge number, and that perhaps suggests that lots of people are out flouting these restrictions. But I think what it also points to, or perhaps what it points to more, is is how strictly the police are enforcing these restrictions. They've carried out 3 million checks on cars, for example. There is a very heavy police presence and they really are clamping down when it comes to enforcing these restrictions. But also, I think people feel a social responsibility to comply with this state of emergency as well. So that helps explain why it seems to be working broadly, even though there have been this high number of fines. Guy Hedgeco.
While it's nowhere near the scale of the outbreaks in the West, South Africa is the African country that's been worst affected by the coronavirus. But while the government lockdown, which came into force 10 days ago, was aimed at stopping the spread of the virus, it's also significantly reduced crime. Our Africa regional editor, Will Ross, told me more. It's interesting that the police have given out these uh, statistics, which certainly show a reduction in the amount of crime that's gone on over the last few days. What the authorities have been saying, they've sort of divided it up into various categories, but they're saying comparing the first week of the lockdown when these severe restrictions have been in place with the same week a year ago, murder cases have gone down from 326 to 94 and reported rape cases have gone down from 699 to 101. So a dramatic fall there, and and, and also assault involving um, grievous bodily harm from well over 2,500 down to under 500 cases. So fairly dramatic drops in those statistics that they've given out. I suppose it's not entirely surprising, given that there is a lockdown. But what is the reason the authorities are giving for this big drop in crime? Well, the authorities and the police chief himself, Becky Nele, he he actually said that it's down to the fact that there's a ban on the sale of alcohol. He specifically said it was due to that. And it is true that it's it's hard to get hold of alcohol now in South Africa if you hadn't sort of got a supply in before the lockdown began. But of course, people will look at what's going on and the severe restrictions on movement and say that it's basically because people can't move around to carry out these crimes. It's also interesting that gender-based violence is still a huge problem. And the police say that over 2,000 cases of gender-based violence were recorded over a one-week period. Will Ross. On Sunday, many Christians marked the day on which Christ entered Jerusalem, but it was in a near-empty St Peter's Basilica instead of the usual packed square in front of it that Pope Francis initiated the celebrations of Holy Week. And Easter isn't the only religious festival disrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. Passover and Ramadan are affected as well. All are taking place this month. Our correspondent in Jerusalem, Yoland Nell, has spoken to a rabbi, a priest and a sheikh to tell you how to get the most out of your holiday without getting or spreading the coronavirus. Disinfectant being sprayed around the doors of the Holy Sepulchre Church and Al-Aqsa Mosque and on the stones of the Western Wall. Like cities around the world, Jerusalem is shut. But its sites, sacred to Christians, Muslims and Jews, should be at the heart of celebrations for the coming holidays. This year's Easter services are just to be broadcast on TV, radio and the internet. Father Jamal Khadr is a Catholic priest in Ramallah. We are celebrating the Holy Week, meaning the passion and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And this is a message in itself, a message of hope that the darkness will not last. Cleaning is going on as usual as families prepare to remember the Jewish exodus from Egypt at Passover. And in the home of Rabbi Yehoshua Pfeffer in Jerusalem, the children also help with the food preparations. But this year, there won't be the usual big Seder meals with grandparents and friends. In a certain sense, this is going back to the Passover that we had originally in Egypt itself because the way that scripture plays it out is that each person was in his own home when God took us from this bondage. 
In recent weeks, mosques have switched from calling Muslims out to pray to urging them to pray at home. With the holy month of Ramadan also set to be more austere this year, Islamic scholar Dr. Mustafa Abu Sway says this could be a time for greater self-reflection and a chance to deepen one's faith. It's going to be back to basics and it might be also a reminder for all of us that uh, what we take for granted is not going to be always there. The contested holy city of Jerusalem has seen many conflicts over the centuries, often between people of different religions. But now there's also a sense that a common threat could be an opportunity. There is certain willingness to put conflict on hold and collaborate during these difficult times. And I would say, why not throughout our lives, why not basically have collaboration on a larger scale? Why not basically change our you know, worldviews? Rabbi Yehoshua Pfeffer and Father Jamal Khader have similar ideas. We all face the same dangers now. We are one family and we should collaborate and work as a family together. I think that this challenge is a challenge that affects everyone so universally, so equally, that I think it's a real opportunity to unite all of these different faiths. Amid inevitable fears at a time of crisis, such sentiments can offer much-needed comfort. And many here will hope that they can lead to lasting change when the streets of Jerusalem's old city are bustling once again. Yoland Nell in Jerusalem. Professional football around the world has been a big casualty of the coronavirus pandemic. There are only four countries who are continuing to play in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. Belarus, Burundi, Tajikistan and Nicaragua. The decision to carry on playing in the Central American country has led to a surge of interest in their 10-team top division, but it hasn't been universally welcomed by the clubs involved. Nigel Adderley told me about the Nicaraguan leadership's apparent attitude towards the coronavirus outbreak and football. Well, there are currently five reported cases and one death in the country, and the president, Daniel Ortega, I think is determined to maintain an air of normality at a time when many other countries are enforcing quarantine and lockdowns. The vice president, Rosario Murillo, who is also the president's wife, has insisted that tourist activities continue. And the capital, Managua, hosted a mini-marathon for hundreds of fun runners on Friday to help start a week of celebrations heading towards Easter. The health minister was also sacked last week, and, and I think the general approach is business as usual. So football continues, and although the matches are behind closed doors, there are three games on Sunday. So what can teams who are uneasy about playing actually do? Very little, it seems. The vast majority of the teams in the top division have links with arms of the state. There's one owned by the police force. Another club in Managua is bankrolled by the city's mayor. And the players who feature for these teams all say the same thing. They'll play until the government decides to call a halt. Dilianguen are the one side which voted against playing They're independent of the state, but they did play on Wednesday. They all wore face masks and they beat the police team. And they're also playing on Sunday. And their general manager, Sergio Salazar, says the players are really scared, but they don't feel as though they have any choice. They have to play. So so is this paying off for the footballing authorities in Nicaragua? Are more people watching the Nicaraguan League now? 
It seems they are rather like the situation in Europe, in Belarus. There are sports channels around the world with nothing to show. So they're expressing an interest in showing anything. And the Nicaraguan League falls into that category at the moment. And sports betting companies will also see it as an opportunity because gamblers at the moment have nothing to look at either. So it could prove to be an unexpected windfall for the sport in Nicaragua. And presumably in the current climate, the president will be fairly happy about that as well. Nigel Adley. And in other news for football fans, Bayern Munich has said that its players will return to training later on Monday for the first time since the German Bundesliga was suspended more than three weeks ago. Bayern led the table by four points at the time. And that's all from us for now, but there will be an updated version of the Global News podcast later. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, you can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. I'm Janat Jalil. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.